Blog Talk Radio. Progressive News Network. It's Sunday, April 26th. I'm Brooke Hines. I'm your host for this evening. Uh, we have a great show for you. We've got uh, Janine Moloff as every week, as usual. She comes on at the bottom of the next hour to discuss uh, issues of justice. This week, she will be talking about how private equity firms are profiteering from the pandemic um, and with a special uh, focus on global supply chains. So this is a really broad topic, and she's going to be covering this this week and next week with a focus on supply chains this week and a focus on the actual private equity firms last week, uh, next week. Sometime in the future. <laughs> I've just confused myself. Oh, and I'm super excited about this. We have Kardik Krishnire on tort reform and how it broke the back of the Democratic Party. Now, this isn't just about tort reform. This is a much broader discussion having to do with uh, how, how the Democratic Party, especially in Florida, has found itself in the, the precarious position that it is in now. Uh, a lot of you might not be aware of this, but Florida's uh, party presence is that, well, one, one way that we like to put it is that the... Um, the party is really good at winning primaries and not very good at winning general elections. And Kardik is going to unpack why that is and how some of this goes back to fights over tort reform in the past. We also have the director of anything, a, a great organization called Anything is Possible, uh, talking about its mission for disabled Floridians. That's coming up uh, after the top of the hour. And this week, Rick Spizak had an interview that there was some technical difficulties with, but I thought we're working on that for you next week, a fabulous article uh, or a fabulous interview, uh, a little bit off the beaten path with regard to politics, but uh, very interesting nonetheless. He will be talking to an ayahuasca researcher who is a... Uh, got a lot of interesting things to say about um, the world and how we live in it, as, as we all should. Um, so I look forward to that. Um, in the interim, I have a couple of short poems that Rick has provided me with, and I f- forgot to read them last time. And I looked them up and thought, you know what, I think they're actually better this week. So I'm gonna read this one and I'll save one for uh, for later. Uh, this is called, this is on science 
and it's called Science is Self-Correcting. And uh, Rick writes, science is a self-correcting project. Old ideas are superseded. If this surprises you, read some science history. The Aristotelian mo world model was replaced. The Newtonian model was superseded. That's how science works. So if scientists change tactics, it should be celebrated. Although according to that old time religion, the night dragon devours the sun and yet the miracle of his birth is celebrated each morning over tea and crumpets at many kitchen tables. And uh, Rick said at the end, he says, I hope that makes you smile. And it did very much so. So thank you very much for that, Rick. Um, and we will get to that interview next week because this is some really, really cool material. Um, it is January, April 26th. We've been in quarantine for a while. I've lost track. I mean, I've been, I've been self-quarantined since before the lockdown in Florida. So probably 36 days at this point, maybe 38, something like that. Uh, but here are some other stats that I think are important for us to remember. Um, Pat the Burner just tweeted this out not too long ago uh, this evening. He says, 26 million, Mar million Americans lost their jobs due to COVID-19. 26 million. 44 million Americans don't have health care. 38 million Americans have inadequate health care on top of the 44 million who don't have any at all. And 69% of Americans want Medicare for all. Medicare for all covers everyone and saves trillions and Joe Biden is against it. Hashtag Medicare for all or bust. And I wanted to share that with you because I came across uh, an article that updates, uh, there's some polling that updates that number on 69 percent of Americans approve of Medicare for all. Uh, it turns out that this week there was a new poll showing that nearly 90 percent of American uh, Democrats, who are also Americans, 90 percent of Democrats approve of uh, Medicare for all. So what's happening and what this poll is reflecting is that, uh, of course, as we keep keeping on with this COVID-19, with the virus, with the quarantine, with people getting sick, with uh, worried about our families getting sick, with all of the uh, attending uh, emotions and issues that surround this, this uh, situation that we're in. More, unsurprisingly, more and more people are seeing the light on Medicare for All. Because we're looking at other countries and we're looking at how they were able to deal with COVID-19 and how they bent the curve of infection uh, and how we've been unable to match that kind of performance. And the reason why we're unable to match that kind of performance is because people in America can't go to the doctor. And you especially can't go to the doctor if you've just lost your job because you no longer have health care, you know. Um, if you're lucky enough that your employer that 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 you can get on on, on Cobra, uh, 
which has nothing to do with your employer. Everyone can get on COBRA, but it is super expensive. So I've had to do COBRA in the past, and my COBRA um, costs for one person were like $1,500 a month. And this was years ago. Uh, I can't imagine what you would be paying for family, uh, mom, dad, two kids. I can't imagine what you would be paying for four people on, on COBRA. So you've just lost your job. We're facing uh, one of the hugest economic downturns in American history. Everybody's saying that what's getting ready to come at us is worse, is going to be worse than the Great Depression. And so People who don't have access to health care, people who don't have health insurance, they are not going to just show up at the ER or, you know, call up telehealth because you can't, you know, there's just nothing that people can do. You know, we're just stuck. And so that's what's driving these numbers up. Now, at the same time that we have this new poll, this is a, um, a poll by uh, the publication The Hill and in collaboration with Harris X. Uh, the survey was released Friday and showed overall support for Medicare for all at 69%, as Pat the Burner said. Um, but that number soars to 88% for registered Democrats. Among independents, voters likely to be crucial in the 2020 election, uh, the support sits at 68%. And even Republicans approve of Medicare for all uh, to the tune of 46% of all Republicans. Um, it's really, and it, I, I don't want to get too far into the uh, um, emotional battle that we're all facing with regard to COVID and with regard to not being able to get health care and with regard to um, the uh, uh, state of play with Medicare for all now that um, Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign. Um, however, I think that we need to be very clear about where we are with regard to a potential Joe Biden pre presidency. Uh, and this particular issue. Because remember, Joe Biden, you know, he, he's been pretty much absent this, this whole week. He's gone into hiding again. Who knows what's going on with Joe Biden? But uh, uh, he, on uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's show, said that he would veto Medicare for all if it came to his desk. If he was president and that bill got through the Senate and got through the House, um, under some sort of miracle, if it got to his desk as he was president, that he would veto it. And I don't, I just don't see how you say that as a, as a candidate for president. I don't see how you say that without just completely expecting people to, you know, lose interest in your campaign completely, especially considering we're all quarantine now and we're all facing job loss and we're facing not having health care and we're facing potentially a uh, devastating illness for um, any one of anybody in our family you know potentially everyone in your family since it's contagious uh, you know and we're all locked down together you know who knows 
who knows how, how it all plays out. We also don't know uh, how it is actually that COVID is, is killing people. So this is an interesting story. I'm going to follow up with this later in the week um, because we've covered COVID backward and forward on the Sunday show. So I don't want to spend too much time on COVID science for this show, but I do want to um, put a pen in it and let you know that we're going to be returning to that in a, an extra episode uh, later this week because there's some really interesting science out this week. Uh, I think it was the New Yorker or New York Magazine did a story on how we don't know how it kills people. Here it is. We still don't know. It's New York Mag Magazine. We still don't know how the coronavirus is killing us by David Wallace Wells. And essentially what this article is talking about is how COVID-19 attacks almost all of our major uh, uh, bodily systems. So it attacks your lungs, it attacks your intestines, it attacks your cardiovascular system, it attacks your brain, it can attack almost any part of your body. I mean, the, the one thing that I don't see actually is a, um, skin manifestations. And, and, and as a matter of fact, there, there are signs and symptoms that have to do with the color of your skin and uh different manifestations that can happen on your uh, digits, on your fingers and your toes. Uh, so honestly, this is just the weirdest thing. There's a, it's, it's a completely fascinating to me that illness, a disease like this has popped up out of nowhere and it is so radically different from anything else that we have ever dealt with. Now, uh, we say that it is radically different than anything else, but I got to tell you, it reminds me a lot of two things of what is known as chronic fatigue syndrome and what is known as Lyme disease. These are two diseases, uh, two manifestations of disease uh, that have been very controversial with regard to the research part of them, with regard to understanding how they work, and with regard to understanding how uh, the diseases manifest in society. So uh, there is a little bit of back and forth, I think, with, uh, with those kinds of diseases and with COVID. And that's what I intend to talk about later on this week. So that's just a little preview. And uh, we will... Uh, Hit that probably Wednesday-ish this week. Um, but we want to stay on the political side of COVID for tonight. And you probably know that this week we uh, there was a, another COVID bill. Um, you know, the first COVID bills uh, didn't really do much for uh, American people who are suffering from job loss and who are suffering from not being able to see a doctor. Uh, well, guess what? The, the next one, the one that just passed, still doesn't do anything. It replenished the uh, 
funding for the Small Business Administration to provide loans to small businesses. It's my understanding that these loans are forgivable. At the end, we will see how that works out. Um, but uh, this last iteration of the coronavirus relief stimulus was dubbed CARES 3.5. So this is the third and a half bill, I suppose. Uh, this mainly replenished that, that fund. Uh, and again, we saw Democrats hunt, you know, they, they just didn't stand up and fight for us. You know, those of us who are out there working for a living and, and, or not at this point, and don't know how we're going to pay our bills come May 1st in just a few days, uh, there was nothing in there for us. And again, we were told that we have to wait till the next one. Wait till the next one. I'm starting to feel like, you know, a, a, a child who has asked for an ice cream cone or something and your parent is, is putting you off and putting you off and saying, no, we'll do it later. No, we'll do it next time we go out. No, we'll do it next week. No, we'll do it six months from now. You know, this is, this is not the behavior of, uh, of elected representatives who are fighting to represent us. As a matter of fact, they're doing it seemingly everything that they possibly can to avoid um, representing the American people. And so it should come as no surprise that uh, on May 1st, May Day, there will be uh, some, uh, some wildcat strikes. Uh, there's uh, Instacart, Whole Foods, Amazon, and one other uh, uh, corporate work group, and I can't remember which it is, but there's a a scheduled strike for those <clears throat> for those businesses. Do not cross the strike. Don't cross the picket line. Don't order your Instacart on May 1st. And let me just give you what day that is, so that it's easy for you to remember. May 1st will be next Friday or this upcoming Friday. Don't order from Instacart. Get your Amazon shopping done and out of the way. Please try to let these folks um, do what they need to do to uh, fight for fight for what's right for the for them and what's and what's right for us actually as a society <clears throat> because we need our workers to be paired, paid fair wages. We need our workers to have uh, uh, health care. We need everyone to be taken care of. And I think, um, I think that our listeners are all on the same page with that. Uh, we are not a Republican. You know, this is not um, pro uh, Republican News Network. This is Progressive News Network. And so we are 100% in solidarity with uh, the strike on May 1st, Friday, coming up May Day. Um, and, you know, if you're not familiar, May Day was the original Labor Day. May Day was the original uh, uh, place where workers recognized the, the labor struggle. And Labor Day got moved around. Uh, they put it at the end of summer to get it far away from May and then put Memorial Day, you know, the somber uh, uh, remembrance of those who were killed in um 
in deployment for military service, uh, they swapped them. And they did it for a reason, to make sure that workers didn't get all, you know, didn't get all full of themselves at a time that was traditionally and historically a labor uh, um, calendar day. So let's this year celebrate May Day in the proper fashion by having solidarity with workers. Do not go to work if you are one of these um, one of these folks. If you can participate in the strike, please do, uh, and please make your support be known on social media. It is very important. Uh, I know it doesn't seem very important to just be talking amongst ourselves, but it's very important, and we have to move the struggle forward. This is what this is what we do. We we fight and we keep fighting and we fight some more until we get what we need. So with regard to Joe Biden, with regard to Joe Biden's potential for being elected president, uh, if you follow me on Twitter and if you've listened to the show very much, you're probably aware that I am not, uh, if I were a betting person, I would not bet on Joe Biden winning this particular election. There's a lot of reasons for that. It is really hard to unseat an incumbent. Uh, Donald Trump, despite the fact that he's a maniac and an idiot and tells people to drink bleach and inject disinfectant and shine some light on, on in your van somehow to kill a virus, despite the fact that he is such a moron, he has um, consolidated his uh, his support. So his support keeps rising. And the Democrats have nominated a, an unvetted, seriously unvetted candidate. Uh, Joe Biden flew under the radar for the entire campaign, all of the primaries. You know, we talked about Kamala Harris. We talked about Elizabeth Warren. You know, we studiously ignored anything having to do with Bernie Sanders, you know, just yada, 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 all kinds of stuff. Pete Buttigieg was the flavor of the week for a while. I mean, really? Uh, but we never really took a good hard look at Joe Biden, you know. Um, well, this week, Joe Biden announced uh, uh, something that people had had been an open secret and people had thought uh, would be the case. He announced that Larry Summers was going to be his, uh, was is performing duties as economic advisor uh, for Joe Biden. Now, let me just re refresh your memory on who Larry Summers is. Uh, Larry Summers, probably more than anyone else, uh, is, is a, a has his hands dirty with regard to the last recession. He was, um, uh, you know, he was right up there with the rest of those uh, um, folks who, you know, as the uh, uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, uh, he uh, he he bears some responsibility for what happened in. Uh, in the uh, crash and then what happened after the crash. 
during the Obama administration. But there's other things about Larry Summers that should be very concerning to people, especially with regard to Joe Biden. So, you know, Joe Biden's got this uh, accusation against him by Tara Reid. Tara Reid was a staffer of his in the early 90s. And the allegation is that Joe Biden cornered her and sexually assaulted her. And then uh, his staff, you know, pushed her out of uh, out of her career, which was in which was in, um, you know, politics and the surrounding stuff that you do around politics, just being a staffer. Uh, so that's sad and that sucks. Uh, but Larry Summers is um, had quite a robust relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Turns out, uh, Zach Carter, the ever wonderful Zach Carter, writes in uh, Common Dreams this week that uh, uh, it's a story called uh, "Joe Biden Needs to Stay Away from Larry Summers." Everything Summers touches turns to ruin. And yeah, that's absolutely the case. You know, uh, let me get into that <clears throat> Epstein stuff in just a second. And I want to refresh your memory that uh, Larry Summers was the president of Harvard University, right? Does that ring a bell? And does it also ring a bell that while he was giving a speech, as president of Harvard University, that Larry Summers argued that women are biologically predisposed to mediocrity in science. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. He had to step away from being president of Harvard, partly for that, you know, because that caused a lot of outrage. And it, it should surprise no one that someone who has that kind of view of women would uh, uh find common cause with uh, someone who is um, accused, accused of sexual assault. And it should come further is no surprise that this person who, you know, we just have to, we just have to, you know, look at very recent history as a terrible economics advisor. Uh, I mean, maybe great if you're a billionaire and your and your whole point of, um, economic uh, uh, advice, economic uh, um, work is to make the rich richer. I mean, if that's what is what he was setting out to do, which I'm sure it was, then he was fabulously, wildly successful. But the rest of us have suffered. And I'm concerned about the rest of us. I'm really not concerned about the uh, millionaires and billionaires. They're going to do just fine. Um, they might not think so. They might think that they're having to tighten their belts just a little too uncomfortably, but um, they're going to be just fine. The rest of us are not going to be fine. When we slide into this depression that is looming in the future, it looks like it's looming at us about, you know, going to hit about late summer. Uh, we're the ones who are going to be paying the price because <clears throat> we're the ones who aren't going to have jobs or houses or places to live, or food, or any of that stuff, and it's all going to happen while we're still fighting the stupid pandemic, and there's not going to be any money left, because we've already given how many trillions of dollars to B, 
bail out, quote unquote, bail out businesses, big corporations that didn't actually need it. And we're, you know, we're so captured by this uh, uh, mythology that we're supposed to somehow uh, appreciate the fact that a, a company like Shake Shack turned down their money, like, like we're supposed to say thank you to that, you know, no, no, we're not, I have no appreciation for that. You know, screw you guys. You, you, you don't deserve the money. You don't deserve uh, praise for not taking the money. Uh, you all need to show solidarity with us, the consumer and the worker in reeling this stuff in. You know, this should have never happened in the first place. And the voices that you didn't hear were the voices, the thought leaders, you know, the CEO roundtables. Uh, you didn't hear them talking about how that was a bad idea, how it would bankrupt the country, you know, how it, how it would lead to big deficits. But I tell you what, after the election is over, you're going to hear a lot about how we got to all tighten our belts and we're going to have to cut Social Security and we're going to have to cut Medicare, you know. And that's been Joe Biden's project for his whole career has been to go after Social Security and Medicare and that big pot of money, that big old pot of money that you're not supposed to touch, the one that Al Gore wanted to put into a lockbox. And he wanted to put it into a lockbox for a reason. It's a very important reason. Which is Wall Street has been trying to get Social Security. They've been trying to get their grubby little hands on Social Security and Medicare now for generations. And when they do, you can kiss it goodbye. When they do, you're going to see a lot more uh, uh, older people who are homeless. You are going to see a lot of um, poverty amongst people who just can't take care of themselves. And it's going to be a, a bloody mess. So all the more important that people come together now whether it's Trump in office or Biden in office, we're going to have to fight equally hard to get anything for workers, to get anything for seniors, to get anything for anybody who isn't a billionaire. Um, that's just the way it is. And, you know, one of the things that we did that was just terrible and stupid and will never happen again is during the Clinton administration, we didn't um, we didn't pressure Bill Clinton at all. We thought, oh, he's on our side. He's in office. And, uh, and uh, instead of opposing him, instead of pressuring him, people made excuses for him time and again, all the way up until uh, the affair with Monica Lewinsky. And still we were making excuses for him. Well, I think we're smarter than that now. And we've got Cardit Krishnayer getting ready to come on here in a second. And we're going to talk. We're going to continue this, this conversation. So hold on just a second. Oh, went back to Napoli because she missed the scenery, the native dances and the charming songs. But wait a minute. Something's wrong 
Hey, Carter. Welcome. Welcome to Progressive News Network, Carter Krishnire. And I think we've got a little bit of technical difficulty. Are you there? And I've got an echo, by the way. All right. I'm going to mute that. I'm going to come right back to you, Kardik. Check your um, check your headset and make sure that that's all there and ready to go. And we'll try it one more time. Kardik Krishna, are you there? Yeah. All right. I'm going to give it a few more minutes. Uh, Kardik, I'm going to mute your your line. Uh, you might want to hang up and call back in and see if we can get a better connection. Okay. So this is me. This is me cutting off. There you go. There he, he went. He's going to call back in. Fabulous. Um, so yeah, Cardick has for quite some time, this has been a, um, a topic of conversation with he and I about how in Florida, tort reform and medical malpractice reform were used against the Democratic Party. And I think we've got you now. Carter, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Fab. Yes, I can. Fabulous. So tell us, um, tonight we want to talk about tort reform and product liability and medical malpractice reform and how that has, what's the story behind this? How did this come to affect the Democratic Party so much, especially in Florida? But I think uh, everyone has felt this uh, nationwide. Yeah, I mean, Florida was very much along with Texas, the laboratory for this sort of kind of radical uh, legal reform and, and the, and the concept uh, and there was, a, you know, obviously the Bush brothers were in these two states also, which is not, not a coincidence. But this sort of uh, feeling that uh, they could defund the left, right, by limiting the amount of money trial lawyers could make in addition to protecting their corporate friends. And I think the reason I've been thinking about tort reform so much lately is because I think there's a very, very clear um, – Pattern, a clear line you can draw from conservatives getting away with the passing of tort reform to now where we are at a, in a position where conservatives are applying laissez-faire principles to a pandemic saying, well, we need to reopen because more people are going to die. They're, they're, they're arguing more people are going to die because of economic uh, causes than, um, than from the pandemic. Now, I will concede, and, and I think there are a lot of mainstream Democrats who don't want to concede this, that if you, see, if you get major drops in GDP, that does result in deaths, uh, particularly in middle America, places that they, they're not accustomed to going anymore. They're not accustomed to getting votes anymore. I mean, hopefully, for the Democrats' sake, Joe Biden will do a little more campaigning in Wisconsin than Hillary Clinton did. But mm-hmm. um, the Democrats don't seem to care about that sort of thing anymore. But, there, but you can draw a very fine line from – 
the passing of tort reform, product liability reform, and med malpractice reform to where we are now, where there are conservatives who, who want to uh, essentially sacrifice human rights, uh, life to a pandemic in order to reward uh, corporations on the right, uh, insurance companies, and quite frankly, just their ideological adherence and dogma to the free market politics. So where I would say it started in Florida was in 1994, Lawton Childs was governor, and he is down in the polls that entire uh, the entire two years, right, from Hurricane Andrew onward, after Hurricane Andrew, Childs had a 22% approval rating, lowest ever approval rating uh, in recorded polling history in this state for a sitting, uh, for a sitting uh, governor or senator. Uh, Ed Gurney was close uh, when he decided not to run for re-election in 1974. But Childs has a 22% approval rating. Jeb Bush, the son of the president, is going to be the Republican nominee for governor, even though there were some other uh, statewide officials, Jim Smith, Tom Gallagher, et cetera, who, who wanted to run. Childs um, is on, uh, at the end of the 94 session. And again, the expectation is he's gone in 95. This is the expectation among the conservatives. And when I say the conservatives, I unfortunately include a lot of Democrats in that, in that uh, basket. Um, that they're going to be able to get rid of Childs. So Childs pushes through a lawsuit against the tobacco companies very sneakily on the final day of the session, which might be his final day as governor with a sitting legislature. It passes at midnight or so and, and really wasn't noticed at the time. So the, the state initiates this lawsuit against the tobacco companies. And, and over in Mississippi, there was a, a guy named Mike Moore, who was their attorney general, um, classic kind of Southern trial lawyer, um, you know, looking out for working class folks who had initiated this whole movement nationally. So there was, uh, there was him, there was a, a, a attorney general in Connecticut who's actually now in the U.S. Senate, Richard Blumenthal, um, among others who, who signed on to this along with Florida. Uh, but we were really kind of the big state that did it. So um, Childs never leads Bush in the polls until the debate in Tampa, like a week before the election, when um, he throws out the, the famous he coon line. And Jeb Bush has no idea how to respond. And uh, he, you know, epic comeback victory. It's the last time the Democrats have won the governorship in this state. So Childs wins by, uh, um, by like 50,000 votes. And he had won Broward County by like 200,000 votes. So, you know, the Republicans kept arguing, well, we really won the rest of the state, right? So anyway... The next session, the Republicans decide they're going to start with this tort reform stuff and force Childs to veto bills. So, and what, um, what year is this? 1995. 95 so is when the, 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 okay. So this is the trigger because in the, at the same time, they just captured Congress. And Newt Gingrich is, um, is uh, pushing this sort of stuff. And they have some Democratic help. Uh, Joe Lieberman was a primary co-sponsor of the Securities Litigation Reform Act in 1995, which, uh, which President Clinton vetoed. And it was very funny because we weren't sure what Clinton was going to do, right? He hadn't vetoed a bill at all at that point. And then he starts vetoing bills left and right. Uh, uh, and, and you remember, there was a lot of nervousness because uh, we had already seen that this guy wasn't the progressive we thought he was, Clinton. And um, 
but then he, he he looked very strong and stand up when he vetoed some of these bills. And some, so some of this stuff was delayed, right? And there was a Paycheck Protection Act they tried to push, which would um, cut union, you know, would, would would force union dues, uh, essentially um, pre- prevent union dues from going to uh, political causes. So this is 1995. Charles vetoes uh, a bill. Comes back in '96. They pass. They pass. They have the votes in the House to override his veto. In the Senate, they thought they had the votes, and they brought the bill to the floor. And with and there were several Democrats who were supporting them. Um, I will uh, give your your uh, Orlando mayor, Colonel Orlando mayor, and uh, he was the Senate Minority Leader at the time, Buddy Dyer, some credit for uh, he, he he had tried very hard to keep his caucus um, in line, but there were some very conservative elements in that caucus at that point. Um, and out of nowhere, on the floor, with the bill on the floor, Ginny Brown-Wade, um, who was a state senator from Brooksville and became a congresswoman later, a uh, pretty conservative Republican, said, you know, I've had too many family members die from tobacco-related illnesses. I can't vote for this veto override. So the whole thing falls apart for them. Um, lawsuit goes forward. Tobacco companies settle. A great victory for, for trial lawyers in Florida. But the next year, the Republicans come back. By this time, in 96, they win control of the state house. So then in 97, they are trying to do all sorts of things to scrutinize the lawyers' fees, to push all kinds of different tort reform bills. Um, Charlie Chris was in the middle of that. I mean, I know now we're supposed to like him because he's a Democrat, and, and I think he has his ideology has genuinely changed. And I guess on that issue, because John Morgan hired him, John Morgan was one of the guys who, whose lawyers' fees they were scrutinizing. Um, along with like Bob Montgomery and Fred Levin and some of the other real uh, legendary attorneys, Chris Searcy, uh, in the state. Um, so 97, they're pushing it. 98, they send a full-fledged tort reform bill to Governor Charles Desk. He vetoes it. Um, we know he, he passes away that year. Buddy McKay, who's a Democratic nominee for governor, um, this is where I think the whole uh, – and, and where we have to have a broader – cultural discussion there was in the mid-90s this kind of hipness and coolness that had uh, it was about around being a quote conservative democrat i even partook in some of that Mm -hmm. i thought it was really cool and even though i loved buddy mckay i would say stupid things like you know he really is too conservative we need to nominate uh uh, rick dantzler or or bill nelson someone who's more conservative um there were a number of Democrats, although, of course, I closed ranks eventually But um, when I realized the stupidity of this argument. But there were lots of Democrats in this state, elected officials, who decided they were going to support Jeb Bush, some overtly, others very hmm. quietly and covertly. And they were uh, in alliance with the insurance industry. They were in alliance with the doctors, with the Florida Medical Association. They were in alliance with the police and firefighters unions who had decided that they were going to throw in with the Republicans. Um, Hmm. And so the three priorities, Jeb Bush gets elected governor. Um, There are all these these dissident Democrats. The three priorities become reward the the, the firefighter and – uh, and police unions by pushing unfunded mandates on municipalities in this state, forcing them their pension plan, which was what they wanted. But these municipalities mostly have Democratic mayors. And this is when Scott Maddox really came to fame because he was uh, the mayor of Tallahassee. And he was like, hell no, you know, I'm going to fight the legislature on this and fight Jeb Bush on this. Um, then um, 
then push uh, school vouchers, which of course was to break the back of the teachers' union, and then every single kind of tort reform bill you can imagine start, started circulating. And Bush is the governor. He's going to sign everything. We know that. Unfortunately, because this is how the Democratic Party was operating in the 90s and has continued to drift away from its principles, there were um, an extraordinary number of Democrats that uh, did business with the insurance companies, made deals, made deals with the Republican leadership, and voted for those tort reform bills. And there was also, unfortunately, um, this, this narrative that they developed that the, uh, that the trial lawyers were very um, arrogant and great and, you know, these fat cats and all of this stuff, right? This is was, this was a big part of their, uh, their, their messaging. But um, what was really striking was that, you know, any time you dealt with a high-end personal injury attorney or a high-end trial attorney, the type of people like the Morgans and the Levins and the Montgomery's that would take on the tobacco industry, you were usually dealing with self-made men, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and uh, so my state senator was with Skip Campbell, the late Skip Campbell, who, who passed away um, two years ago when he was the mayor of my town, Coral Springs. And um, he was my state senator at the time. He had won a big award in the lawsuit when uh, American Airlines crashed a plane into a mountain in Colombia, uh, a flight from Miami to Bogota crashed into, uh, into a mountain in the mid-90s. Uh, so he had, he had actually carried a lot of the victims' lawsuits, or victims' families' lawsuits, excuse me, the victim, everyone died on that flight, um, and, and had made a, a fair amount of money off of it. Um, but he was such a great spokesperson in, in actually kind of teaching me the fundamental of this issue, which is um, they, the conservatives... The corporations want tort reform because then it becomes like in the case of the airplane that crashed. Okay. And and we could even apply this to Boeing more recently. It becomes cheaper. If you're capping damages and you're capping lawyers fees on, on product, on product liability specifically, it becomes cheaper eventually to start killing people. Um, And there's a a cost risk uh, uh, scenario here where where there are conservative Republicans uh, and these laissez faire uh, free marketeers who are who are saying, oh, okay, we can just we can if there's no personal injury law, if there's no, you know, torts or capped torts. Then, yep. then killing people can be a cost of, of doing business. But there's also right. the idea of defunding the left. And Correct. so there was, there was two sides to this, too. Yeah, so the defunding of the left, and we felt it. I mean, I, I, it was theoretical at the time. And I'll admit, even though I – and I, I will admit, I had played around with this conservative Democratic stuff, this blue dog stuff. Oh, yeah, McKay's too liberal. We need to nominate Rick Dantzler or someone like that. But then this issue is the one that really made me a progressive because I, I, I could not see the other side of the issue. I could not put myself in the shoes of the Democrats, including uh, some from here in Broward County who voted with the insurance industry and voted with the doctors and voted with the corporations on all these different – uh, legal reform bill. So th- it was really the thing that made me probably more than anything uh, went took me from being like a partisan, you know, partisan Democrat, just like a, a Democratic hack, if you will, to being uh, a, an actual fire breathing liberal. Um, but the defunding of the left, I thought, OK, well, there's still going to be money floating around. 
No, there wasn't. So basically, there, it's twofold. What ended up happening is you cap damages. So the lawyers that have a lot of money to play in politics, and at the time it was, I mentioned Morgan, Searcy Denny from West Palm Beach. It was uh, uh, Rick Rosselli's firm from here in Fort Lauderdale and Skip Campbell, Krupnick Campbell, uh, a number of uh, big Miami firms, of, uh, big trial lawyers in Dade County. They were throwing a lot of money into the Democratic Party, and, and they were – they were essentially sustaining the party in the state of Florida. The teachers union were also a big part of that, but I would say the trial lawyers more than anything. Um, and so what ended up happening is their, their rewards become less, lawyers' fees are capped, and so they have less disposable money. What I did not receive, Brooke, and this is really mm-hmm. the killer, is that so many – because it – Personally, injury law, I, 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 I hate the conservative description of them um, and corporate Democratic description of them as ambulance changers ambulance and all this stuff. There is, a, there is an element that is so difficult to that law. It takes money on, on the front end. It takes dedication and, 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 and commitment. And you're taking on large companies. You're taking on corporations. You're championing consumers. You're championing people who have been hurt by negligence. Okay, so they're not like these corporate attorneys and these real estate attorneys. Um, so they, they, the, the problem was now we have all these kids coming out of law schools in the state of Florida. They see PI uh, law or any sort of trial law as uh, something that's not going to make them money. They've been mm-hmm. infected by the, the Reagan-Clinton generation of, of me, me, me. So they're going into corporate law. They're going into real estate law. They're going into all this other sort of law that connects them more to the right. So then we're having even now a point where we have no really active young trial lawyers in this state. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and you could say too, you, you know, another problem that we have uh, in, in the state, and I think this is uh, across the United States is that there's not a bench, you know? So, so yeah. in addition to having the left defunded and the crumbling infrastructure within the democratic party, you also don't have these up and coming, uh, uh, you know, legislators at the state level, that would move on, you know, and in, into uh, congressional seats who are coming out of that trial lawyer more consumer, uh, group, culture. More consumer groups. Yeah. So, uh-huh. the, the, so it, this, this is so important. So not only are you not the, 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 uh, um, the democratic bench is coming from these like community activist groups, you know, the types I'm talking about, they're talk, coming out mm-hmm. of these, these kind of like very leftish on, um, on identity and race type groups. They're not coming from like the old consumer and environmental bench that we had developed in the state. There were a lot of environmentalists also, actually, um, mm-hmm. that they, they were the other kind of producer of, of activists, the environmental movement in the 80s, um, when we had Bob Graham as the governor and we were pushing growth management laws and the sugar companies were kind of on the back foot. So we had, um, we had a bench of environmental activists and then we had the trial lawyers funding consumer groups and consumer activism and um, the same way, I mean, and I'll admit it the same way you would say that the, the, the people on the right now, the Koch brothers, et cetera, fund things that are maybe not necessarily specifically in their purview, their industrial purview, but are um, that support conservative causes. You had a lot of trial lawyers in this state funding. And I think this was even true of John Morgan until recently, right? Funding other 
liberal groups, liberal activist groups. So you were getting legislators out of that. You were getting legislative aides out of that. You were getting campaign workers out of that. You were getting activists who would lobby for consumer issues, for environmental issues, and for just good progressive issues uh, in the Capitol that you no longer are developing any of that. So the, um, and I assume this has happened in Texas too. That was the other state they pushed it. I've talked to people in North Carolina. Now North Carolina the Republicans didn't get control of the legislature until 2010. No surprise, when the session opened in 2011, this was, this was the first set of uh, bills they, they pushed through was court uh, reform. Then, just like Florida, the next set was on school vouchers. Uh, I'm told that the trial lawyers have been decimated in that state. And, um, hmm. you know, this may surprise a lot of people. I know a lot of the listeners are big Bernie Sanders supporters and, and voted for Bernie Sanders. And I think the, the corp- corporate America was genuinely scared of Sanders, right? And the Democratic establishment was genuinely scared of Sanders, and we saw all the tricks they pulled uh, to stop him. I would argue similar things happened to John Edwards in 2004, and there was this paranoia, and, and we're talking about North Carolina, and we're talking about trialers. There was this paranoia and fear that they had made all these gains in these states. They had essentially... Uh, created a narrative where, where trial lawyers were, were called ambulance chasers while insurance companies were seen as people, you know, helping pe- helping ordinary Americans with their health care, right? You know, uh-huh. they created this, this, this horrible paradox. But um, the fear of John Edwards was off the charts in that, in that period, even among Democrats who had tied themselves to the insurance industry and uh, – and uh, uh, doctors and such. Uh, there was just this absolute fear that um, you would have a trial lawyer president. And I think that there was an unprecedented effort that would have happened behind the scenes in corporate America had he won the Democratic nomination. Now, he was on the ticket, right, in 2004, but he wasn't the, he wasn't the, the top of the ticket. Um, although, <laughs> you know, Swift Boat is about as, as shady as it comes, right? But um, still, there would have been this unprecedented effort. So what they also did is they broke the backs of the Democratic Party in the South because I, the only base of institutional support the Democrats had in Mississippi and Alabama, and even once, once they started to pass court reform bills in Mississippi, Alabama, and, uh, and North Carolina, I mentioned, those states, the votes were much closer than Florida. Florida had this culture of a lot of uh, uh, Democrats who had already made, uh, made their bed with the insurance companies and, and had sold out uh, progressive principles. Even though you would perceive North Carolina and Mississippi, as, uh, sorry, Alabama and Mississippi as being more conservative than Florida, and those legislatures didn't flip till 2010, um, the Democrats that were still Democrats, and then there were, you know, there were a bunch of party switchers, right, a bunch of conservatives that switched and became Republicans in both those states. But the Democrats that stuck held, and um, it was much more difficult in the other southern states for them to pass uh, tort reform and product liability reform and med malpractice reform. Their caps are generally not as low as Florida's. Um, they, there's, there's, uh, although they still kind of crushed the Democratic Party in those states. But the, the lesson, I think, also is that there has been in this state for a very, very long time a, a segment of Democrats willing to sell out the party or sell out the principles of being on the left very easily. Um, just for some sort of access to power. And, and unfortunately, that continues till today. I mean, I, I think that there's uh, very, very few die-in-the-wool progressives uh, in, in the state legislature. There's, there's very few die-in-the-wool progressives running 
uh, in Florida anywhere at this point. Um, the insurance companies have, uh, I think, more foothold in this state than they do in most places, and uh, the corporations do also. And we have a, a, an environment where we can't attract young professionals to this state, right? We haven't attracted uh, co- the kind of companies. So the Republicans talk to, say they're all about business, but we, have, we can't attract an Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos is from Florida. He's from Miami. You can't attract mm-hmm. Amazon to do anything in this state. You can't attract Microsoft to do anything in this state. You can't attract Apple to do anything in this state. So you're not getting the professional class of young people that would kind of bring the ideas and change the culture. So the Democrats here have become even more corporate and even more conservative. And um, we're just in a vicious cycle. We're in an unwinnable cycle. And that's why if people ask why, people ask me all the time, why do progressive candidates do so poorly in Democratic primaries in Florida? And they do well, they do much better even in states like Georgia and and, and Mississippi, et cetera. That's the reason. So... Now, give me a sense of, of how widespread this is. Is this something that just affected Florida and states in the South? Are there other states where uh, tort reform wasn't as extreme as it was here? Well, Texas was a state where it was very extreme. Texas, um, Texas in fact, um, it stayed Democratic longer than it probably should have because of the trial lawyers, because of their, uh, their ability to, to control the politics of that state. So once Karl Rove and uh, George W. Bush got in there, and it, it took till 99, because even though Bush wanted uh, being Ann Richards in 94, you had, um, you had Pete Laney and the Democrats in the, in the state house uh, continuing to, uh, even though they played ball with Bush on other things, and Bob Bullock was the lieutenant governor, they had an elected Democratic lieutenant governor, they, they couldn't pass this. Once it came down in Texas, it came down hard. I mean, they, their caps were as bad as Florida, if not worse. Uh, they, they, they essentially ran the whole industry out of business in that state. And that state um, obviously had some other pressure points that we don't have, which is an oil and natural gas industry. And there, um, the, the fact that that kind of reactionary right-wing causes, even going back to uh, when Lady Bird Johnson got assaulted on the street of Dallas uh, in the 1960 campaign when her, her husband uh, Kennedy's running mate, that, that goes back to H.R. Hunt funding, uh, kind of your first AstroTurf protest, right? goes back to oil companies doing that. So they, they had that pressure point, which we didn't. What we had is an organization called Associated Industries of Florida, which, uh-huh. uh, which is, uh, was founded by a guy named uh, Ed Ball, who was an heir to the DuPont fortune. His first great political success was taking Claude Pepper out, uh, who was one of the most liberal U.S. senators uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Senate, 1950 Democratic primary, um, in one of the nastiest races you'll ever ever, uh, uh, see that's been seen in American politics. Pepper gets beat, and then after that, they found this organization, Associated Industry Supporter, which is essentially to protect corporate interests and make sure there isn't another Claude Pepper that gets elected from Florida, right? And they have gradually chipped away, and um, the, their last adversary was Lot Childs, right? Or Buddy McKay would have been their last adversary. Once Childs and McKay were disposed of, they had control of everything, including uh, many of the Democrats who were uh, actively playing ball with them. So when you look at the Democratic Party in Florida right now, uh, and, and, and I'm talking about the uh, 
the kind of professional side of that, you know, the, the actual FDP and the, the way that they maneuver and the way that they work in the state, are they still affected by, like, to what extent is the regime now, the FDP, Florida Dems, Democratic Party, to what extent is our state Democratic Party uh, still suffering from the effects of this? Do we, yeah, so in other I, words... I think- have have we hired those uh, those kind of conservative Democrats into the infrastructure? No, uh, well we had. Um, so this 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 will probably be a, a pretty logical explanation. Right now we have a bunch of kids, well-meaning kids, working for the FDP. I wish them all the all the best. Um, who don't have any historical or institutional knowledge, right? So what happened is you had a number of these people who had been affected, who were lobbying for the insurance industry or lobbying for the sugar companies. I mean, I, I walked into the FDP headquarters in 2013, I want to say it was 2014, and there was a, you know, a hat from U.S. Sugar right in the reception area. <laughs> wow. What is this? <laughs> yeah. But what had happened was um, those people who were executive directors of the party or were political directors of the party or were consultants closely uh, connected to the party, all went into some degree of private business. Now have insurance companies, um, fertilizer, you know, fertilizers, AT and T, you know, telecoms, these sorts of things as their clients, and um, it, or they're in like firms like uh, Southern Strategy Group, whoever, which is which are Republican firms, um, and their job, they're designated as closers to go to the Democratic state house members. And remember, we have term limits. So none of these people have been around for very long and tell them, you know, it's really okay to vote for this telecom bill, right? You know, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a good thing. So they then, so what I would say is the Democratic Party itself, the FDP has a lot of well-meaning people as of now, as of 2020. Uh, I wouldn't have said this in 2014 and 2015. In fact, I was uh, trying to burn down the house, as you remember back in those days. Those mm-hmm. people who were internal then have now gone on the outside, have more influence and power with the legislature. Um, and, and this started actually a while ago. I'll give you this one story. Scott Maddox was the chairman of the party. He had been the mayor of Tallahassee. I know he's gotten into a lot of trouble since and is going to jail, but that's, that's not the point that, I, uh, that I, I'm trying to make here. Maddox is the chairman of the party. There is a bill on Everglades, uh, Everglades restoration and funding that is up in the state Senate. Maddox decides he's going to take the environmental stand as a party stand, okay? I'm the party chairman. I'm going to go talk to Senator A or Senator B or Senator C about, um, about this. And he got into these offices, and they're basically like, oh, no, you're the former executive director of the party. His name was Screvin Watson. Um, he was the son-in-law of Charlie Whitehead, who had been the pro- former chair of the party, was now lobbying for both AIF and the sugar companies. And so basically the senator is like uh, – a couple senators are like, well, Screvin got me elected. And Maddox would be like, I'm your chairman. I'm the chairman of the party. And they'd be like, well, I'm whatever. This guy got me elected. I'm voting with him. And um, so wow. th- that bill passed. Yeah, it was, it was crazy, and that's how – Things have gone. So that's what AIF and the insurance industry and the, um, and the corporations look for. They look for Democrats that may want to make money as lobbyists who have worked for the party, who then – who are now in their 30s or 40s. They're not in their 20s anymore, and who 
uh, are setting, who have a family now, uh, they want to buy a house, they want to make money, hire them as the lobbyists, have them go lobby the Democratic members to make sure the Democratic members stay in line. And I, I have to say, the only people who really fought um, this was in the period from like 2006 to 2012 or 2004 to 2012 were a group of four or five Republican state senators. And I think most people will know, listening probably know who Paula Dockery is uh, from Lakeland mm-hmm. and uh, Mike Fasano from Newport Richie. Those were two of them. They were the most independent members of the, uh, of the legislature. They were the only ones these lobbyists couldn't get to because the corporate lobbyists had the rest of the Republican Party in their pocket. And then they always had the, they had started this, poli- this, this uh, policy of hiring Democratic closers. So a lot of stuff got blocked because of that group of Republican senators. Um, I found that even replacing some of those moderate Republicans with Democrats hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't helped. In, in many cases, mm-hmm. you'd rather have the moderate Republican who, who, who's decided, like Dockery, for whatever reason. I think Dockery's big thing was high-speed rail, and the party came out against it, and she then kind of you know, went, went all the way against them. But you wanted people like her who were not going to vote with them for, for no matter what they tried to throw at her versus some of these Democrats who either um, flip or if they don't flip, they don't know how to articulate the messaging well enough to go after the, to, to go after uh, the majority. So what we've seen in the last year is because Rick Scott was a, was a bit of a bumbling moron, right? Mm-hmm. Really kind of a ineffectual, awkward, just not a very effective governor, which we, we, was lucky. That bought us eight years because the ineptitude of, of where we are on the left has is, is been there for a while. Now we have Ron DeSantis, who is like a steamroller. I mean, he's gotten more done in a year to break our backs than, than um, Scott did in eight years. So um, now I think the Democrats are really beginning to see not having any infrastructure, having kind of these disparate community organizations that are associated, that are funded by national Democrats, that don't really know how to message properly, um, all mm-hmm. of these groups, and not having trial lawyers that, that can create that infrastructure. This is where it comes back to the tort reform thing. Trial lawyers create that infrastructure. They're able to, uh, to train people, to build a bench. Not having that is killing us. And uh, I know a lot of people think, oh, because of coronavirus, DeSantis is probably vulnerable now. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how the dust settles. But um, I, I think that... Uh, what we've seen in the last year is a guy that can ro- roll over the Democrats, can roll over the left, can own the libs, so to speak, and mm-hmm. can do it while, while maintaining high approval ratings, which Scott was never able to do. So um, yeah, we're in a very, very vulnerable position here. I don't, think, uh, I don't think Biden has much of a chance in the state. I know the polls say otherwise, but, but uh, I hope I'm wrong. But that's, that's my view. I just think of Democratic infrastructure – because of the crushing of, of, of the trial lawyers and really kind of the, the, the less, lesser influence of the teachers union and the weakness of SEIU, right? I know there's a lot of service employees, hospitality industry employees in, in Central Florida in particular, uh, but in all parts of the state, but in Central Florida in particular, they haven't been as organized as you would think they would be. So we have all these disparate groups, and, and it's not coming together. So, uh, Wow. That is a lot to think about. Is there is there any? Let's say 
that we wanted to try to get some of that power back. Is there, how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube? How do you, uh, uh, is there a model for, uh, has there been any successful push to, uh, to reanimate the uh, uh, personal injury uh, side of things? To, uh, are trial lawyers at all trying to get more power? And if they do, will they, is, has there been any template for success? Um, they are trying to get more power, but they, um, they, they have, uh, uh, have another group of trial lawyers now, not people who weren't really around in the years when, uh, look, I, going back to the 1980s, I should say this, when Bob Graham was the governor, the trial lawyers were the most feared group in, uh, in the state. And Mm -hmm. at the time they had just, uh, uh, the government, they had most of the elected officials behind them. They had a cadre of support, uh, even uh, uh, future Republican Senator Melmar and HUD Secretary Mel Martinez was a prominent member of, of uh, what was then known as the Academy of Florida Trial Lawyers and fought the corporations, believe it or not. And he's another guy that flipped once it became kind of convenient. He had been kind of this very soft kind of liberal Republican who, who, was, uh, who was with uh, the trial lawyers on consumer issues. I mean, actually, the med malpractice, when med mal got defeated in the state on the ballot, Mel Martinez, uh, to his credit, was one of the leaders statewide pushing against it. Then, of course, 18 years later, when it passes statewide, uh, 65, 35, or some ridiculous number in 2004, he's running as a Republican nominee for Senate, running on an, a right-wing platform. So that, that almost tells you the transition in the state. And, and it had gone from being defeated on a statewide ballot uh, 55, 45 or so in 86, uh, or 84, sorry, uh, to being, um, passed by this huge margin and, uh, effectively the trial lawyers being put out of business. So what you have is a lot of younger trial attorneys that have focused on claims issues, have worked with Republican legislators to get, um, um, to get, uh, stuff passed or stuff, you know, to make sure the line is held, right? There's been, there have mm-hmm. been efforts at, tort, at further tort reform and further product liability reform that have been blocked because the caps are already so low and uh, they have gotten enough Republicans on their side. But there is a bigger issue here, Brooke, which is the lack of class consciousness and awareness among Democrats mm-hmm. in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. So in the 1990s, as much as we want to beat up on Bill Clinton, as much as we want to beat up on, on, on the DLC, I think there was very much still a feeling that the Democrats – were a working class party. And if you talked about consumer issues, which is what uh, legal reform and, and, and product liability and tort reform really is, it's a consumer issue. It's the same thing, even med mal reform. It's a consumer issue. It's a victim's issue. It's a working class issue. Um, most Democrats who weren't elected officials, like I said, the elected officials were getting bought off already. But most Democrat, lay Democrats I would go speak to as someone working in campaigns would be 100% with us on the issue, right? There would, be no, there would be no ambiguity. And I'd be like, hey, uh, Representative Ritter, Stacey Ritter, who was my state rep, she voted for tort reform. Oh, my goodness, she did. Well, well that, that would be the reaction. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's like, because there's no class awareness, um, there is no concern about the issue with a lot of Democrats. The Democrats 
So in those days, the Democratic base were a lot of older in the, in the state of Florida, older New Deal liberals who had come of age. And maybe by that time, the ones that had come of age during FDR were dead, but had come of age during Truman, Kennedy, and Johnson. And so on these sorts of issues, they were still very liberal. Um, now, if you go to a Democratic club or you go to a Democratic activist event, they're concerned about how someone voted on said social issue. You know, and I, I obviously I'm very liberal on those issues, too. So I would be banging the drum with them on abortion and on guns and on uh, those sorts of issues. But um, there is a lack of class consciousness. They don't understand the importance of this, these sorts of issues and protecting consumers. And so um, I don't know that uh, even if the Democrats got back in power in this state, they would push properly to just get rid of all the caps and go back to where we were when Charles was governor. I mean, go back to, you know, just reset and go back to 1998. Because as I said, uh, they kept passing things from 95 onwards, but Childs kept vetoing it. So uh, go back to the tort laws, the product liability laws, and the med mal- med- medical malpractice laws that we had on the books in 1998. So I would be perfectly happy with that. So I hear you describing that there is a, a, a multi-front uh, a battle in front of us. We need, and, and the good news is, is that young people, I mean, by and large, class consciousness is is coming back into fashion. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, sure. Thank God. Uh, and there is quite a, you are absolutely right, there is quite a cadre of amazing young people that are working with FDP uh, now. And it, it, at least in the time since I've been in Florida, since 2006, it is probably the most impressive class of people who are working at the party level right now than I've seen since I've been here. You know, there, there are some amazing folks, and I, and I hope that they continue up through the ranks and continue on into politics proper. There's a few of them that I would really like to see run for office. But Cardiff, we are we are out of time for tonight. I thank you so much for this conversation, uh, having this um, uh, perspective is so important and so valuable. So thank you so much. Thank you, and I appreciate the time to talk about it. All right. You guys, Cardiff Krishnar, check him at floridasqueeze.com. Also, check him out on, on Twitter. He uh, he's a, a great follow, definitely somebody you want to keep up with. And uh, we are going to be right back with Judy Craig, the founding director of Anything Is Possible. Just a second.
ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring Miss Judy Craig, who is the founder and director of an organization called Everything is Possible Foundation Incorporated. And Judy, uh, it, that what an amazing name. And I know a little bit about it, but why don't you tell our listeners what is the work of Everything is Possible Foundation Incorporated? Well, we basically work with uh, individuals that are disabled, including veterans and animals, to help them live together in a fun atmosphere. Oh, how nice. I saw on your Facebook site that you've done events for for uh, wheelchair folks and, and people with other kinds of physical challenges. Why don't you talk about how, how did you get the idea for this organization? Uh, how did you get started? I had a stroke in 2007 and went through the uh, medical issues that everyone faces once they have a catastrophic health occurrence. And after about a year or a year and a half of struggling, I thought, what about the people who can't speak for themselves or who can't help themselves? So uh, brainstorming uh, with family we came up with the Everything is Possible Foundation, and the following year we had our first walk and roll in the park. <laughs> we Walk and roll, <laughs> I like that. That's great, great. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you have a little sense of humor, too. I try to. Very good. So how long has the organization been um, established? Uh, ten years now. No kidding. That's marvelous. Now, are are you based in one particular area, or do you serve the state or the nation? But tell us a little bit about the organization. Well, we are nationally recognized by the IRS. Uh, Florida, <laughs> <laughs> they give you all the paperwork, and and we're on the the list for nonprofits nationally. That's wonderful. The, Yes, and here in the state of Florida, you have to register to be able to ask for donations and work on projects and keep it tax-free. That's what a 501c3 on IRS indicates. Well, listen, while we're right there, let's stop for a second, and I want you to tell our listeners how uh, can they get involved, how can they donate to everything as possible. It sounds like you're just doing marvelous work. So should they look to a, a website? Should they look to a phone number? How, how best can people reach out and, and help? Well, we have the everythingispossible.com. Okay. Okay. We have, uh, we have the everythingispossible at aol.com. And the phone number here, because we have the office here in my home, I'm okay. disabled. Ah. Uh, and I'm in a wheelchair, so that's why we have it here for now. Sure. And uh, that address is 1835 Anchor Avenue in land. And our phone number here is 386-738-5781. Now, if someone is, uh, you know, whether it be wheelchair-bound or, you know, it's from a trauma, uh, needs some help and can use some support, um, is there is there a, a process where they get interviewed or sign up? How how would someone get involved with this if they were in a need need basis? They can go on Facebook and put a request in. 
uh, or they can go to the everythingispossible.com and fill out a form. And it's, there's a form for a volunteer. There's a form for if you want to donate to the um, foundation. Well, you know, I, I saw, uh, I looked around your Facebook site a little bit, and I saw that wonderful idea of an Easter egg hunt for children in wheelchairs. I thought that was marvelous. Just a yeah. beautiful, lighthearted, fun idea. And uh, what a great way of kind of bridging that uh, mobility gap, if you will. Let me ask you to tell us, uh, the Easter egg hunt was a marvelous idea. Why don't you tell us about some of the other events that you do? Well, the the walk and roll was our first event, and we've done it several times. Wonderful. And what we did was we got permission to uh, take over a large park here in Volusia County, and we had walk uh, trails for two miles, and we invited anyone and everyone who wanted to come. If they were disabled, they did not have to pay the fee that we were asking because we had a bag uh, with T-shirts and goodies and things like that. We even had lunch provided for them by our barbecue place. Uh, We had uh, different stations. They could go uh, in their wheelchair, in their walker, uh, walk regularly. They could bring their bike. And it's a beautiful park for that because you can take a short walk or you can take a long walk depending upon the path you take. We had then after that, we had some uh, items that were donated that were very large. So we decided to let that be uh, at the end of the walk and roll after they had lunch and heard some lovely music. Oh, how nice. So is this uh, both a volunteer and uh, a professional agency, or do you rely solely on volunteers? We did up until this year when um, Lauren Grogan came and was a volunteer, and we decided uh, through the board to hire her as a CEO. She's a media specialist. She's very well organized. Uh, she can do grant writing, and that was the purpose of getting someone on board that could be professional. Well, that's wonderful. So many organizations, as they transition from uh, depending solely on a founder to larger, larger, and, and again, get professionalized, it's, it's quite an interesting, complicated transition but it sounds like you're you're moving in the right direction. Do you have any activities uh, that you see in the near future? Yes. Uh, we want to become an independent living center, which is uh, a large office. And what I would do is start out with Volusia County and Flagler County in the rural areas where there is no place for someone to go that is either disabled or handicapped or uh, has, uh, you know, other things that they need a vocational rehabilitation or maybe an application for some of the programs that are available, and we'll be able to take care of them through that. I also plan to have, um, as in other centers, a, a program where we do the, uh, uh, like a rent-a-dog, uh, have them come and give lessons on how to work 
with a, a specific dog trained to help those with complications of the mind, the body, and the spirit. Sure. Well, that's so interesting that you're engaging with uh, with animal support as well. It seems that uh, our uh, our culture has just come to realize how important uh, the role of pets can be, and especially trained support animals can be in, say, the last decade or so. Uh, how did you begin that those early steps? I assume that you're a pet lover yourself? Yes, I am. I have two little kitties that live here with me, and they're two fun little boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought that was interesting the way you put that, that they live there with you. Because certainly anyone who knows cats very well knows that they're not really owned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've had a wonderful experience. We rescued them. And that is another part of the program that we want to add now is to take care of rescues, make sure that they get adopted by a family that will be loving and caring and get them placed right away, not to leave them in cages. Uh, let them be free and loved. Well, you know, I think you, you struck another note that I thought was very important. Uh, you mentioned that you're helping people who are in need uh, and and working with trained animals as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, there is a segment of our population that is disabled in many ways, and sometimes you can't see that. And they do need um, a, a, an animal, for instance, the dogs are the best uh, to help with those that, like myself, I had a stroke, and um, I could have a dog here, and they, they often know before you have another major occurrence problem. And uh, I, I went for a year for training just to see what the program was about. And that's what encouraged me to get started with animals added to our program. Well, that sounds like a very, very helpful and very humane idea. Uh, So you're providing good homes for animals and and really uh, helping people in that special way, that caring for an animal and and, uh, that spark that comes from being with with our fellow creatures. So now that's marvelous. If there was one other thing that you think people should know about Everything is Possible, what an amazing name, Everything is Possible. What, what prompted you to come up with that name? Well, somebody gave me a, a little uh, placard, and it said that what we need in this world today are more people who think that impossible is not a word. So with that, I wanted to go to the more, uh, how would I say, uh, fun and and a positive way rather than the negative. Sure, sure. Yeah. And go ahead. Okay, I was going to say that, uh, and it seemed to be received very well. Oh, it has a marvelous, marvelous uh, uh, idea. I think uh, wrapped in there, everything is possible. I, I believe that myself, and I've seen some pretty amazing things in my few years on this planet. So I'm I'm with you 100%. Everything is possible, that's for sure. Any final thing? Oh, let's please tell us again, how can people get in touch with you? Okay. They can go to our Facebook page, 
uh, everything is possible. Uh, they can uh, go to our website, everythingispossible.com. They can email everythingispossible at AOL.com. And they can call at 386-738-5781. Well, thank you so much, Judy. This has been a marvelous visit. I'm so happy to hear about your organization And it sounds like you're going to be helping an awful lot of people for a very long time. That's so wonderful. Thank you for the good work that you do. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Judy Craig, founder and director of Everything is Possible Foundation Incorporated. I'll let you have the last word, Judy. What else did you want to say? I want to thank you, Rick, for uh, allowing us to share some of the work we're doing because I guess we're the best-known secrets sometimes. (laughs) Well, hopefully it won't be a secret any longer. Thank you so much, Judy, for your time. Thank you, Rick. I wish you and Laura and all the good people of Everything is Possible the best of luck and every success. Count on us as your friends. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Judy Craig, founding director of Anything is Possible. Uh, Great interview with Rick Spizak again from the road. And... Now, I bring to you Janine Maloff. Uh, there she is. Hey, Janine. <laughs> Hi, Brooke. I'm How good. are you? I just get straight into it. I'm good. Okay, I'm good. I've got another thing on this hashtag, um, not dying for Wall Street series. This deals with COVID, alleged COVID cronyism in the Trump administration. This report deals with two legal concepts namely the possible prevalence of open graft in the Trump administration, and more specifically with the disastrous COVID-19 response, the equally possible charge of negligent homicide. So far, approximately 50,000 people have died due to this administration's, in my opinion, utterly inept and corrupt response, which has been characterized by a type of cronyism that was previously referred to as graft. Citing West Encyclopedia of American Law, edition two, copyright 2008, graft refers to, quote, a colloquial term referring to the unlawful acquisition of public money or questionable and improper transactions with public officials. Graft is the personal gain or advantage earned by an individual at the expense of others as a result of the exploitation of the singular status of or an influential relationship with another who has a position of public trust or confidence. This is, the advantage or gain is accrued without any exchange of legitimate comp- compensatory services. Behavior that leads to graft includes bribery and dishonest dealings in the performance of public or official acts. Graft usually implies the existence of theft, corruption, fraud, and the lack of integrity that is expected in any transaction involving a public official. And they cited West Encyclopedia of American Law, Edition 2. Now, the definition of resulted negligent, or the resultant, in my opinion, resultant negligent homicide is the following. The negligent homicide meaning is the killing of another person by acting negligently, quote, or without malice. Um, And it occurs when a defendant basically kills another person while, quote, engaging in conduct that they should have known carried risk. So now they give some examples of negligent homicide. Say, for instance, um, you're excited by an outdoor holiday celebration. A guest shoots his firearm into the air. The bullet strikes another guest, killing them instantly. That person knew that when they basically shot anywhere, the bullet was going to land somewhere. Now, in proving negligent homicide, the prosecution would establish 
that defendants knew the risk associated with their actions. And in our legal system, there is a presumption of innocence. The prosecution has the burden of proving negligent homicide beyond a reasonable doubt. So it has to have evidence so strong that it eliminates any doubt. And in order to establish criminal liability, the prosecution must prove that the following things, that the defendant was aware of the risk associated with whatever the action was that led to the other person's death, and that the defendant acted or failed to act appropriately in a dangerous situation, and that the action they did or inaction, such as negligence, caused the victim's death. And there has to be a direct link between the defendant's conduct and the victim's death. And if the prosecution fails to prove all those elements, then the case, case ends in acquittal. Now I'll discuss the elements of the Trump administration COVID-19 response to supply chain problems regarding personal protective equipment or PPE and that really speak to these two issues, all right? Um, these are necessary, PPE as well as ventilators, these are necessary tools. And if medical professionals don't have access to these things, people will die, including those medical professionals. This is known by every medical institution worldwide. And now we have what are increased costs to taxpayers directly due to the use of for-profit middlemen, and that resulted in insufficient supplies or no supplies at all, all the while with what appears to be, in my opinion, zero transparency and accountability coming from this administration. So first, the issue of PPE. Now, in Common Dreams, uh, Ian Higgins wrote, quote, Here's the title, moronic but consistent outrage over Trump administration giving PPE to private companies, not states. And this basically deals with how Governor Pritzker in, in Illinois basically, you know, complained that a White House initiative to airlift needed PPE to healthcare workers had been redirecting the supplies to private companies. And that in turn forced states that were desperate for these supplies to bid against each other. And Pritzker and other governors had to, or hospitals had to go directly to the manufacturers. And the quote, they quoted Pritzker, quote, I hate the idea that I'm competing with against other people in the United States, other governors, even to try and get what we need. And Pritzker told PBS NewsHour Judy Woodruff this. He also said, but this is, quote, quote but this is what President Trump has done to the country, end quote. Now we talk about Project Airbridge, and that's what this is getting down to. Um, Pritzker basically was referring to this project, Project Airbridge, which is a transportation, this author called it a transportation scheme, and it's supposed to deliver PPE and any other medical supplies to the U.S. from the manufacturers in China. And basically, this Project Airbridge is, they're alleging, is interrupting what should be just a simple, straightforward policy of getting the equipment to the places where it's needed. And they call this the air bridge, and they're delivering, instead of bringing the stuff back from China to the United States and, you know, respecting the bid of these states or of these hospital groups, and, and, and it, they, it's these manufacturers accepted uh, payment, they're delivering these PPE and these other supplies to private companies in the United States, not the states. And then they're letting them all bid against those goods that are owned by, and these goods are now owned by private companies. Basically, in my opinion, Project Airbridge is not just a screw up, as this writer says, but it's, a, in my opinion, it's, it's a scam to allow private corporations that are friends of Trump to price gouge past any known limits, 
And, you know, the question of mine is, is this a RICO violation? We don't know. And guess who's in charge? Jared Kushner. So is Trump or the Trump, here's some other questions to consider. Is Trump or the Trump organization or Kushner getting a kickback from these unneeded middlemen sales? Because again, instead of it going directly to the states, this equipment is being misdirected to private companies who sell, for private companies who sell the equipment to the states at an increased cost. That's why you'll see a respirator mask that maybe retails for 60 cents, uh, they're paying $7 for each one, okay? And, and the other question is, isn't awarding a contract for a higher price after a lower, lower price to another entity was negotiated and accepted by the seller the very epitome of graft and contract fraud? And again, is that a possible recall violation? Why isn't the DOJ investigating this? This is the core of what, in my opinion, the corruption. So we've got Project Airbridge. And again, the supplies are being transported to the U.S., often, according to this writer, with the coordination of FEMA. And they're delivering the products and supplies to a network of private companies who, again, resell the goods at a gouged profit. And these private companies, here's the kicker. According to this article, these private companies have been made exempt from antitrust regulations for the duration of their roles in this specific distribution process. And that exemption was basically found in a DOJ memo. Okay, it's not fake news, it was their own letterhead. And that's why they're calling it the Wild West. Uh, you know, again, the question is, we, if, if every medical institution in the world knows that without PPE and, and sometimes without ventilators, people will die, including healthcare professionals. And if that PPE is being de even delayed or it is not being fully delivered because of the increased cost, one, isn't that extra profit made on the taxpayer dime a form of graft? And two, isn't that delay that costs possibly more deaths that are unnecessary, exacerbates the problem, is that a form of negligent homicide? And possibly is that a form of negligent homicide on a genocidal scale? And once again, these are all questions. And then to add more insult to injury, um, there was some criticism and Rear Admiral John, I don't know if I'm gonna say his name right, Polwizic, defended this, what can only, in my opinion, is a scam. And there was a White House press conference after April 2nd, and here, while Navy personnel, especially aboard the Theodore Roosevelt, are stricken with COVID and a few have died already, Rear Admiral John Polwizic is defending how the government is handing, is basically washing their hands of the supply chain and giving it to a private company for additional profit and the Admiral said that Project Airbridge was, quote, not here to disrupt a supply chain, end quote. My question to the Admiral is, what are they there for? Harvard professor Juliet Caven disagreed. She said, quote, they screwed up one apparatus supply chain delivery that didn't need to be fixed, end quote. Attorney Emma Katerine uh, also said on Twitter, the government's decision to allow private companies to just to control these, this PPE is an example of what she called the capitalist mismanagement that is further exacerbating this disaster. 
what we have here is a system that, again, looks like laws, military, and police are protecting property and not citizens. You know, they're saying, that according to, again, uh, Emma Katerine, they're saying it's a free market. Uh, and to quote her, she said that it's just natural for corporations to call the shots. It's not. It's a political choice backed by the full weight of state power, its laws, military, and police protecting and serving property, end quote. So basically from here, it's clear, at least to me, and to my opinion, that this strategy was engineered, again, and it was engineered to build the taxpayer, but it's also exacerbating shortages of crucial life-saving equipment in order to price gouge at a higher level. This, in my opinion, is a prime example, of, and it also leads to possibly negligent homicide. Now, Jared Kushner has this, what's been called a shadow corona uh, unit, and this was written in several different um, uh, groups. Tom McCarthy in New York wrote about it. Um, and once again, you know, we see countries like Germany where Angela Merkel is doing everything basically in a very smart way, but she's also a scientist. You know, the COVID-19 crisis has been compared to as worse than 9-11 or World War II, and it is worse. So far, the approximate estimate is about 50,000 people in the U.S. have died thus far. Now, Kushner's role in this privatizing scheme that is costing lives it, it is something that needs to be examined. Keep in mind, privatizers are making profit while, in my opinion, inappropriately using taxpayer agencies such as FEMA. We're paying the bill. And... His Kushner's responsibilities, according to, um, let's see now, basically he weighs requests from governors, and according to Reuters, he coordinates with private companies to first get the medical equipment, and he, according to New York Times, he carries out all these duties from a special post that was created for him, and that post is inside FEMA itself. Now, his team was uh, Kushner advised, Kushner's done several other things too. He advised Trump that COVID-19 wasn't that dangerous. Again, if that's not negligence, I don't know what is. Especially when there's no question medically or scientifically that COVID can be fatal and highly contagious. That advice from Kushner, which was in direct contradiction to the opinions of every medical facility worldwide, costs lives. And that is part of the definition of negligent homicide. Governors calling the White House are forced to speak with Kushner. He's the gatekeeper to Trump, and he decides who actually, which governor gets to speak to Trump. That's why they're calling it a shadow task force. So while the entire world knew that there is a dangerous shortage, for instance, not only of PPE, but of ventilators, in a conference, Kushner delivered a lecture to the governors on management and really knowingly delayed the assistance. Now, Trump is blaming states for lack of surprise supplies, which again is not the case. Um, and then you have another case where Walter Schaub, this writer cited, who's a former director of the Office of Government Ethics under Obama, called Kushner a feckless nepotist um, who, is a quote, a feckless nepotist who presumes to criticize governors striving to fill the void left by this previously unimaginable federal failure, end quote. There are top experts on the COVID task force, um, but they don't call the shots. Kushner does by all appearances anyway, not actual doctors like Fauci or Burks. Now, there's more specifics on Kushner's role that exists beyond the purview, and it is beyond the purview of government agencies. Kushner was also the one allegedly 
who urged Trump to open America up by Easter, and this is according to Vanity Fair. Um, Kushner said, quote, I have all this data about ICU intensive care units capacity. Again, Vanity Fair. Um, he's, and then a White House source speaking to Vanity Fair said, quote, I'm doing my own projections. And I've got, that's what Kushner's saying. I'm doing my own projections, and I've gotten a lot smarter about this. New York doesn't need all the ventilators, end quote. Um, Kushner was the one who urged Trump to disregard, allegedly disregard the advice of top medical experts and open the nation for business. He, you know, once again, this overreach puts more American lives on the line. According to The Guardian, Lloyd Green wrote, quote, the princeling has helped place American lives and bodies on the line. New York's hospitals become combat zones. It's morgues and funeral homes look like abattoirs. Meanwhile, the U.S. is locked down and the administration is projecting up to a quarter million dead, even if everything goes right. American carnage is now. We may witness more deaths in months than its troops suffered in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam after years of fighting. And that's Lloyd Green, according to The Guardian. Now, we also have Pema Levy, who wrote in Mother Jones, and this was how healthcare investors are helping run this coronavirus task force. Again, more graft, in my opinion. Um, the companies have, that are involved, they have a clear financial stake, and they provided little to no um, information about any conflicts of interest. And a lot of them are private equity firms. Um, and again, I'll get to that another time. There's a top exec from a firm called Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, who did join Kushner's his shadow task force. Um, the privateers have not been required to post any disclosure of potential conflict of interest or submit to any ethics recusal. They haven't been forced to divest their fiscal interest either. To add further the possible charges of graft and negligent homicide, none of these outsiders are experts in crisis management when it comes to public health emergencies. None of them are in public health. In fact, most of them are basically professionals who work in the finance end of the healthcare industry. Translation, these outsiders know how to t make money off of a medical disaster. They're not medical experts. So again, there is zero transparency or accountability imposed on this group. And the excuses, since they're not government employees, they don't have to be held accountable. They use private phones and private email accounts. Again, there's no transparency. Now, Jordan Leibowitz from for excuse me for Crew, which is Citizens for Responsibilities and Ethics, explained further. To quote Leibowitz, quote, there are serious questions about how the Trump and Kushner families use the presidency to benefit themselves. Um, Crew's experts claim that Kushner's shadow group is violating is also violating federal record keeping and transparency laws. Um, and to quote Leibowitz, he said, quote, we don't know how involved family business ties are to any of this. We don't know all the members of the task force or who they're talking to. We don't know how people are pushing their own financial interests, end quote. Now, Cruz Leibowitz isn't claiming that Kushner is doing anything nefarious, as he calls it. But, quote, to quote Leibowitz, it is to say that if he were, this is how he would do it, end quote. Now, there's secrecy and possible conflicts of interest. The Washington Post reported in March that, again, these shadow group members were operating out of Health and Human Services headquarter offices, and that included reps from UPS and FedEx. And this is something that's also very concerning. Um, the supply chain for this airlift 
include using FedEx instead of mil- for some of this instead of military planes and possibly double the cost to taxpayers. Again, where is the extra profit? Where's the extra money going to? Um, Health and Human Service and FEMA career pro professionals have been pushed aside allegedly for Kushner's wealthy friends. Existing procedures to deal with such emergencies have been dumped because Kushner, according to these writers, says thinks he knows everything. Um, Then you get to additional problems. The White House, it has been alleged, has erected um, a a blockade that is keeping states and hospitals from getting PPE. And this was reported by David Wallace-Wells, among others. Um, Excuse me, I need to take a little sip here. Um, So this basically looks, the feds have erected what looks like a blockade, similar to the chokehold on vital supplies that we've erected in places like Iran, Iraq, and Venezuela. And it's so bad that the most conservative medical group, namely the New England Journal of Medicine, wrote of this blockade in their COVID notes series. I am not kidding. You cannot make this kind of stuff up. And to quote, and this is from the New England Journal of Medicine, our supply chain group has worked around the clock to secure gowns, gloves, face masks, goggles, face shields, and N95 respirators. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here because it, it, the quote is very long. Um, having acquired the requisite funds, more than five times the amount we would normally pay for a similar shipment, but still less than what was being requested by other brokers, we set the plan in motion. So they had to go through all these machinations just to get this. And then, um, quote, before we could send the funds by wire transfer, I'm skipping ahead, two Federal Bureau of Investigation agents arrived, FBI, showed their badges and started questioning me. No, this shipment was not headed for resale on the black or the black market. The agents checked my credentials, and I tried to convince them that the shipment of PPE was bound for hospitals. Um, and then I'm going to skip ahead here. But I was soon shocked to learn the Department of Homeland Security was still considering redirecting our PPE. Okay, this is insane. There's more, but I can't go through all of that. Um, and, again, the question is this. The feds are bidding against the states. Why? Are they doing so because it drives the price way up? And who is pocketing any difference if that's the case? Um, Quite a few commentators are calling this FEMA piracy. Um, Some call it sanctions because, once again, the federal government is choking the supply chains. And, you know, it's to the point where if you go on FEMA, they have a page there right now. They might have taken it down where they are disclaiming that and saying, this is fake news. This is all just rumors. Don't listen to it. Now, the que- another question is this. Where are these seized, where, these, this PPE that's been seized, where are these seized, and I call them now, they're stolen supplies going? We don't know. Furthermore, we don't know what legal grounds these supplies are being seized or threatened. You know, the writer in this New York mag, the intelligence was asking, how does DHS or FEMA, what right do they have with ventilators and PPE purchases that were legally made by governors and local hospitals? And to quote David Frum, this is like a story out of the last days of the Soviet Union. He wrote this on Twitter, on the Twitter feed of the New England Journal of Medicine letter. Quote, this is what it means to be a failed state. Um, And that was the essayist Umar Haq echoing him. 
you know, once again, this is our federal agency acting like a bunch of mafioso thugs. And now they add even more conflict of interest. We have a for-profit insurer placed in charge of COVID-19 hospital funds. And once again, Wendell Potter, who is now a major whistleblower in the health insurance industry, he used to be actually um, an exec there, called them out on this because it does represent a conflict of interest. Um, it's possible there will be a lot of corporate profiteering. And the White House tapped United Health Group. Now it's the largest private health insurer in the U.S. And they're supposed to be the middleman distributing billions of dollars in taxpayer funds to hospitals struggling with COVID issues. Yet we haven't been offered any rationale as to why we need another middleman, especially coming from the ranks of the for-profit insurance industry. What exactly are they going to expedite? Why can't Health and Human Services administer the money from this program? And, and the response to some of these questions was an unnamed HHS official offered in Politico, quote, United Health was picked because it was better positioned and more cost effective to get the money out the door more quickly than other options that we considered, end quote. Exactly how is a for-profit insurer allegedly better positioned or more cost effective when their presence adds another unneeded layer of cost? You know, again, Crew called it out. Then we have Stephen Parenti, who I'm going to talk about in another report. He is a senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He's also one of the officials um, that helped, is helping with this managing the hospital relief funds. And Parenti does have finan alleged financial ties to United Health. I'm not going to be able to get all of that. That's going to be in the second part. Um, you know, Potter, again, used to be a healthcare exec, and he called them out. He, you know, he said, quote, um, he'd never heard of anything like this. And even though, uh, according to CNBC, United claimed they wouldn't profit from the arrangement, Potter said, quote, UHC execs are canceling contracts with doctors and raking in millions during a pandemic. And now the Trump administration is having to manage a multi-billion pot of relief, dollar pot of relief aid, end quote. It's, quote, it's time to stop UHC greed, especially during this crisis. Um, and Potter now heads an advocacy group of Medicare for All Now. To quote him further, he said, it's, quote, it's simply bizarre and unconscionable that the Trump administration would have united manage billions in relief to hospitals. And he also said, quote, America's, now America's largest health insurer has yet another way to profit off the pandemic, end quote. Now to sum this up, I know I asked a lot of questions. It's my opinion that the evidence of graft is here at this writing, and it spans from the members of Kushner's shadow task force to assigning a for-profit insurer with the task of disseminating money to the hospital. Furthermore, isn't the unnecessary delays and blockades of medically required gear a possible case of negligent homicide? We know that without such gear, many will contract COVID and die. There is no guesswork here. There is worldwide consensus, consensus on this incontrovertible fact. Forcing states to go without respirator, enough respirators, gloves, surgical gowns, and ventilators will result in a severe escalation of COVID and an equally severe death rate. Both Trump and Kushner appear at the very least to be ignorant of the risk, and in my honest opinion, their inability to date to implement a sound COVID policy has resulted in far more deaths, and this does, in my opinion, constitute negligent homicide. That's my opinion. I do wonder if their actions 
I do wonder that if their actions are not based in ignorance or stupidity, then aren't they providing the circumstances for a crime against humanity, namely genocide? And I know I asked, that's my report, I know I asked a lot of questions because, once again, in all fairness, there is so little, there, there is virtually zero transparency. And if you don't have transparency, there is no way you can have accountability. So the only thing we can do is ask very pointed questions. You know, once again, we, this has just shown a pattern that has permeated through this, in my opinion, through this administration. And, you know, the idea that there are blockades interfering with our medical people getting PPE is, is beyond my comprehension. Um, you know. Yeah, it almost sounds like it, it, like a blockade. It almost sounds like there's sanctions against states the way that we have sanctions against like Iran or Venezuela. That's been the allegation. There's been allegations that the Trump administration is punishing um, blue states and favoring red states. And if you don't basically suck up to his ego, then you get nothing. In fact, uh, one writer in, um, oh, God, Daily Cause called him the um, PPE Nazi. No PPE for you. Kind of a play on the old <laughs> soup Nazi from the old Seinfeld show. And, right. it, you know, this is just, again, either this is negligent homicide, in my opinion, and I'm not an attorney, or if they know what they're doing, then this is contributing to genocide. Mm-hmm. You can't, I mean, I'm sorry, but we know that without PPE, people, many people, including medical professionals, will contract COVID and die. Just the other day, there was a 33-year-old nurse who didn't have adequate PPE at the hospital she worked at. She died in a few short days. She tested, by the time she got a test, she tested positive. Her husband, and she only had a four-year-old little baby. Her husband said she took a nap, and when he walked back in the room a few hours later, she was dead. Wow. What is it going to take? What is it going to take to force the Department of Justice to do a sound investigation of this administration, and not just of Trump or Kushner, but of these corporate entities Mm -hmm. that are pushing onto this? The lobbying was beyond the pale. So, you know, once again, next time I probably will deal more with the private equity firms that are involved, um, but I want to be able to do this justice. So there you have it. Well, thank you so much. That was quite a wonderful, I mean, there was so much information there. And, you know, the the takeaway is, it it is really frightening. And it's something that we've all thought about, which is that, you know, Trump is picking who he is going to support in terms of states and cutting everyone else loose. And that's just, uh, I, I don't think we've ever Which seen is illegal. That. Yeah. Yeah. And it's illegal. That's the bottom line. So where's DOJ? Right. He needs to do his All right. All right, Janine, we will see you next week. Thank you, Thank you so much for this yes, report. That was right. so solid. All righty. Thank you. And Bye-bye, for the rest of you guys, Uh, We will see you again next week. Also check out, uh, I will be doing an extra this week uh, on COVID and we'll see you again real soon next Sunday. Make a date. Bye.
some sunlight sprinkled on. Nothing ever happened there till old Andrew came along. Oh, he was rough and ready, he was known both far and wide. And he fought both white and red men with his pistol by his side. Old Andy Jackson, old Andy Jackson, he was born in Waxhaw, South Carolina, and that's a good place to live. Old Andrew grabbed his knife and gun and rode away to fight. He marched his men to New Orleans, his men were always bored. And Andrew Riley then became the hero of the war. Old Andrew Jackson, old Andrew Jackson, he was born in Waxhaw, South Carolina, and that's a good place to live. Indian fight, his beloved ones were dead. He bore this grudge in his weary heart until his dying day. Old Andrew Jackson vowed revenge, someone must surely pay. Old Andrew Jackson, old Andrew Jackson, he was born in Waxhaw, South Carolina, and that's a good place to live. Thank you. 